You're listening to episode 109 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? For those of you participating in NaNoWriMo, how is it going? I'm so curious. Many of our listeners are checking in with each other in our private Facebook group. So if you love to check in about your weekly NaNoWriMo progress, I really encourage you to join our private Facebook group and jump in on the conversations happening right now. Head over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We have the most encouraging and supportive members in our group, so you don't want to miss out on this. Come over and hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Before we jump into introductions for today's new guest, I wanted to thank our listeners for taking the time to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and a huge hug for leaving a rating and a review. Caleb Salwin recently rated our show five stars and left a review titling it the best writing podcast, period. He continued to write, 88 Cups of Tea consistently delivers the best content for writers and aspiring writers. Top-notch guests, an amazing host, and practical, inspiring conversations about the craft, business, and philosophy of writing. It's an easy favorite and one of the most helpful and motivating podcasts you'll find. Oh my gosh, Caleb, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your day to leave that amazing review. I so appreciate you. Now on to today's guest, we have Sarah Shepard, the author of the popular New York Times bestselling series, Pretty Little Liars, and The Lying Game. She takes us behind the scenes of her newest book called Follow Me, that's the second book in the Amateur series. In this episode, we unpack how ghostwriting can help hone your craft and develop your own novel, and how ghostwriting created opportunities for Sarah to develop the Pretty Little Liars book series with Alloy Entertainment. For Pretty Little Liars fans, we dive into detail about the book series and Sarah's thoughts on the TV series adaptation. Further into our conversation, we talk about coping with imposter syndrome as a writer, ways to overcome writer's block, and unlock new plot lines, how outlining can help you keep track of complicated plot lines during your writing process, and how to manage the pressure of strict deadlines. We also talk about how to protect your emotions when writing about dark and intense scenes or characters how to create a villain readers won't forget, and how to write action scenes that will captivate your readers. Towards the end of the episode, we discuss the importance of community and support when you are going through a hardship, and the importance of giving back and showing gratitude to your fans and supporters. Now let's jump right in. Hey everyone, we have Sarah Shepard with us today. Sarah, how are you? We are so pumped to have you on. I am great. I am so happy to be here too. I love this podcast. I'm so excited to get chatting and for listeners to learn more about you, not only as a writer, but as an overall human being. Great. <laughs> I would love to know a little bit more about how you first fell in love with writing. It could be the first memory you had as a kid. Please do share if you do remember. Oh my goodness. I was always a creative kid. I wasn't a go outside and play kid. I always wanted to sit inside and make up stories and draw. I was also really into drawing as a little kid. I was always making up stories. And I remember the first story or world that I made up was about my sister 
sister's blanket, her little security blanket that she carried around, and she called it BB. So I made up this whole world about BB, and I drew BB. It was a girl. BB had a flower head and a triangle body and like a smile. And then BB had a whole bunch of friends. And this was just to entertain my sister, who was maybe two at the time. So I was five. From then on, I was always making up characters, worlds, and stories about them. And I often did recruit my sister to be part of this too. So we had a lot of joint stories that we did (laughs) together. So just from then on, I was always writing and illustrating. I always wanted to be an illustrator too. That never really happened. I was always making books. We drove our parents crazy because we were always just chattering in our little book language. You guys are so cute. We had a lot of fun together. We were very much in our own little world. Creative silliness. I love that. It was awesome. Your parents, do they have any creative blood in them or are any of them artists in any way? My mom was always really artistic. She's very crafty and she can draw in the same way that I can draw, which is kind of doodly drawing. And there's a lot of musical talent on both sides of my family. I kind of got that, but not really. Ooh. I'm trying to think if there were writers. No, there just was a lot of random creativity floating around, but nobody was really doing it for a living. All right, so you totally marked your territory and you <laughs> kicked right. it I'm off like, in your I'm family. The writer in the family. <laughs> I was like, I'm the writer. Yeah. Y'all can be the musicians. <laughs> what kind of musicians? Are we talking about singing? Are we talking about piano? There was a singer. It's on my mom's side. Her name was Joanne Vent. She was a blues singer. She had a record. Janis Joplin, she died of a drug overdose quite young unfortunately. And then my grandfather was in a family band of musicians. And then on my dad's side, there's a lot of random musical talent of people teaching themselves to play instruments and stuff like that. Jeez. So you're kind of like a secret prodigy. You could whip out like a Beethoven if you want. (laughs) You know what? I can play instruments. I can. I can sort of pick stuff up, but I never was good enough at it. But it's in your blood. Yeah, it's fun. I have two kids, but I have a son who I see it in him, especially the musical talent. And I'm like, that's so interesting. Are you able to listen just by ear and replicate what you just heard on the radio, for example, and play out a little note? I can do that. Sarah, do you know I trained years for piano and I could not hear for my life. I'm a visual learner. So I would watch my teacher's fingers and where they would place the keys. Or I'd read the notes. I used to be able to read notes pretty well. But I cannot, for the life of me, hear from the radio or wherever, and then try to replicate it and do my own version on the piano. I could never do that. Girl, you got something because you pass it to your son too. I could not imagine looking at piano keys and copying that. I am so not that sort of learner. (laughs) I'm completely backwards when it comes to looking at what other people are doing and then trying to copy them. Don't get in a Zumba class or something like that. I would be a disaster. You and I both. My aunt (laughs) taught Zumba. She was the best teacher I've ever, ever seen, but she was too advanced that she looked like she should have been teaching ballroom dancing and actual salsa and stuff. So no one could catch up because her moves were too smooth and very graceful with Zumba because it's very workout focused. Those Zumba teachers who are very good at really exaggerating each step and maybe not making it look perfect and maybe might look kind of funny. I feel like those I can follow. But other than that, I cannot follow for my life. And I'm just there in the corner. I'm like, oh, you guys spun already. Okay, I'm just still right right here in the corner. I have no rhythm. We're going to go grab Zumba classes when we're in the same town. Perfect. Done and done.
Sarah, you are so awesome. Thank you for jumping into that with us. I love those little tidbits. Let's jump right back in. And I know you mentioned that you fell in love with writing ever since you started entertaining your sister. Not to sound creepy, but you got your MFA at Brooklyn College. I did. <laughs> Where did you go from loving writing and writing stories about BB, the blanket, to then deciding for real, this is what I want to do. Did you take classes also in high school? What was that like? Did teachers tell you, hey, Sarah, you've got this crazy hidden talent for writing, so you should really explore that? I remember my fifth grade teacher used my writing as an example and only chose two people, and I was blown away. Even though that was fifth grade, it meant so much to me oh that my someone gosh, believed absolutely. in me. Was that something for you too? I did. I had a few teachers along the way starting about as early as you, I think it was fourth grade. Mm. I had a teacher that told my mom at the end of the year, she was a really strict teacher. It was funny. Everybody mm -hmm. didn't like her, but she told my mom at the end of the year, she's like, I'm going to see her name on a book cover. <gasps> and my mom was like, oh, how sweet. Oh, whatever. I don't know. This is a fourth grade teacher. But I thought that was really cool. And I had teachers through the years that said, you can write a sentence. You're good at this. But the funniest one was, what grade was I in? 11th grade. And it was my English teacher. And again, I, it's always these scary teachers. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best compliment, though. Yeah, that have an interest in me. The sweet ones, I like them too, but it's always <laughs> the scary ones. She was this very intimidating, very serious teacher. She was awesome. Her projects were amazing. And she had us reading all these really cool things like existentialist literature, absurdist plays and cool stuff. She took me aside and I was like, oh my God, I failed. <laughs> I must have done something really wrong. I must have written a, a run-on sentence. One of the things you just weren't allowed to do in an essay. But she looked at me and her face was so serious. And she was like, now listen, if you would like you do not have to write essays for the rest of the year. You can concentrate on your novel. <gasps> and I was like, what? <laughs> what? Are you serious? But I was so scared. I was like, I don't have a novel. Yeah, I was going to say, how, why, why did she say novel? What triggered her I to don't say know. that? I have no idea. I have Whoa. no idea. She's like, you can concentrate on your novel. <gasps> I'm like, well, but I don't have a novel. I did not take her up on it. Oh, I wish you did, Sarah. That is the ultimate compliment. I know. and. I wish I would have. I mean, how amazing would have that been? I could have bragged about that to every other kid in my class. I don't have to write the paper. Because I'm, I'm writing a book, y'all. You're going to see my name on a book soon. I should have taken that chance. And if anybody listening is in high school mm -hmm. and you get that opportunity, write the novel. Because yes. why not? Your teacher is saying that you can do it. You know, I was afraid to write the novel because it just seemed so daunting and I had tried to write up chapter books and I've only gotten to chapter two and then had no idea what to do next. So I got that kind of encouragement even through college and even through getting an MFA. It was just something I loved to do, not something that I thought I was going to do as a career necessarily. I knew I would write, but I thought I would write magazine articles or back then I was writing journalism sort of pieces, but I was also doing a lot of quizzes for teen people. As random as that is. Wait, what do you mean? Like, are you creating quizzes or? Yes, I was a quiz writer. That's so yeah. fun. What? How yeah. do you get that job? That's so cool. I was working at Time Inc. Okay, yeah, in New yeah. York. And I worked in like, a really boring department of Time Inc. No offense to those people <laughs> who are still working in that department. <laughs> it was sort of an advertising. We were doing magazines for companies. Like if you had a Ford car, you got your Ford lifestyle magazine. And I was the editor of that magazine. Oh, 
it was a little bit boring. It wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. It was kind of fun. On the side, I knew a lot of people in the building and some of the other magazines under the Time Umbrella were Sports Illustrated and People and Teen People. I had a friend, her name is Jen Kalanita. Actually, she is an author as well. And she was working at Teen People and she assigned me a bunch of quizzes. I don't even remember what my quizzes were, but it was so much fun. Oh my gosh. Was that a, like a lot of research behind? Because I'm just, like, you know, what we see as consumers, the quizzes, we just see like, you know, question <laughs> answer, which is super fun, but they're always very engaging. But I can just imagine how much work goes into every single word that you use or take out and then replace just to make it enticing enough to make them want to take the quiz. Yeah. I don't think I ever pitched the quiz. The topic was always brought to me. I feel like I interviewed psychologists saying, well, who would fit into this category? Who oh. would fit into that category? And then you had to kind of come up with a scenario, a whole bunch of scenarios. But it was great because I liked doing that anyway, kind of like mini stories in each question. A lot of mine, I think, were dealing with friendships or dealing with relationships, like what's your relationship style or whatever it was. I loved them. It was so much fun. I was going to say that sounds so fun. That's really awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you got to do that. So that was basically the farthest you ever thought that you'd be as basically a paid writer. I thought I would be a writer. You know, I thought I would write for teen people or other magazines like that. I loved magazines. So I thought that's kind of the direction I was going to go in. But then through some other people that I knew in New York, useful living in New York when you want to be in publishing in some sort of way because a lot of publishing is there. Mm -hmm. I got to know some people at Alloy Entertainment. Oh, yes. And they are the people behind Gossip Girl and Mm -hmm. Pretty Little Liars, as it turns out. But at the time, they're a book packager in the way that Nancy Drew books, tons of books. They were conceptualized by a packager. They were farmed out to different ghostwriters. And the ghostwriters wrote Nancy Drew number 93 and Nancy Drew number 106. Holy, I never realized that. This yeah. is like, wait, what? I just feel like my mind is blown right now. I hope I am right with using Nancy Drew as an example. I read a New Yorker article about this so long ago about the history of packagers, and I'm pretty sure Nancy Drew was one of them, or the Hardy Boys, like one of them. It's sort of one of those very big franchises of book series. So this book packager... They did not call themselves Alloy at the time. They called them 17th Street Productions. Oh. They were putting together big book series and using ghostwriters to write oh. them, which is somebody who, not your name, it's not your concept, you just execute the writing of the book. And I was like, that could be kind of a cool thing to try out for. I would love to learn how to write a book. I would love to get into the fiction world, because how much fun would that be? I do this anyway. I'm always writing little stories anyway. And also, I lived in New York. I needed some money. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like extra, oh, yeah. Like extra yeah, money. just to survive. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I was 25, and my rent was ridiculously expensive. Oh, my gosh. I made nothing at my yeah. full-time job. So it's like, okay. I met the people at 17th Street, as they were called back then. I tried out, which meant I wrote some sample pages Mm. of a concept that they were working on, which I remember it was a concept about a family who could time travel. And I wrote this little six pages about the family time traveling, sent it off, and they liked it. And they said, we're going to give you a shot to be a ghostwriter. My first 
couple of books that I was a ghostwriter for, it was not about the family who time traveled, unfortunately. <laughs> Darn, those six pages to waste. Right. I know. I was like, what? <laughs> it was called Samurai Girl. It was about a Japanese girl, lived in LA, and she was on the run from her Yakuza family from Tokyo. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. It was a little random. I was like, why did you choose me for this project? Because I didn't live in LA. She's just samurai as well. I had just read a lot of books about it. But it ended up being really fun. It was about that, but it wasn't really about that. It was about identity and relationships and starting over and with a little bit of badass martial arts. I think I was assigned to write three books, which was like, what? In the series. And it was really great because finally, I was always afraid to go from chapter one to chapter two. But I had to outline the whole plot and I worked with an editor and I learned so much on the spot, more than I learned from actually getting my MFA, which wow. loved getting MFA, but but I am one of those people who learn by doing and it was very hands-on experience of this is how you're going to learn to write a book. So the editors, I'm assuming, because this is all under this packaging. So they yeah. tell you how they want, I'm assuming they tell you how they want each book to end and maybe to begin. Yes. Do they tell you about yeah. the middle point as well? As I recall, they had a general concept. Like a loose outline. Yeah, a loose outline. And then I fleshed out the outline. I remember writing the whole outline and it was the first time I'd ever written an outline before. And, you know, the first time I'd ever really written more than like I said, a few chapters before of anything. Right. And I mean, I worked closely with them and they would look at the outline and say, okay, well, we need this here. And I think this should happen here. And it was a great lesson in pacing too and structure and everything. I learned everything. By I think that's it. so fascinating because then I'm like thinking, because Ghostwriter, you said that your name is not on it, right? No, it's a pen name. So it's a pen name. So how yeah. do you then work that in your favor as an author, someone starting a budding career as a writer where you have real potential of having your own name on your right. own book. So do you mention that or that's not even something you talk? Because I'm not really familiar because I actually, I don't think I've talked about ghostwriting on the on over, on oh, over 100 episodes. So this is actually really oh awesome. God. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. good. I ended up working with a lot of the same people I was working with on the ghost written books in order to develop Pretty Little Liars. Oh, so it's the, the relationships. kind of lucky. It was the relationships. Yeah, it was okay. that. I think I would have been pretty comfortable to say, like, hey, and I think they would have been okay with it too, to say to an agent or somebody else in publishing, I was the name behind these Samurai Girl books. Okay, so you're allowed to say that with industry in insiders. I believe so. Okay. I don't think they really wanted me to go out and say, hey, it was me. Right, right. Especially later on, I ghost wrote some books that were a little bit more high profile by an established author and know that that was not really what they wanted me to go around talking about it. Right, right. For those beginning ones that really didn't have anybody real attached to them, right. and it was just a pen name, I think it would have been fine. But I was able to use the relationships that I already had to begin to develop Pretty Little Liars. Basically, the people I was working with saying, do you want to develop a project under your own name? And this was maybe, what year was this? 2004. And again, it was the English teacher that approached me saying, like, do you want to write your novel? You don't have to write any more papers. <laughs> I was really afraid. I was like, oh, God, I don't know. 
it's a little easy when somebody brings you a concept and says like, okay, write this based on this concept and these characters, and you get to hide behind somebody else's name. It was a little scary to then say, oh, wait, I have to do something that's like mine. Mm -hmm. And be totally exposed and vulnerable. Totally exposed and come up with all of it and still have the help of these people that I was working with. But this is something that's mine. I felt like there was a lot more at stake. But of course, at that point, I was like, well, I have to do this. Mm -hmm. And I remember I spoke with somebody who was working at Alloy at the time, and his name is Ben Schrank. He now works at Razorbill. I remember he was like, I really think you should. I really, really think that you should. I think it's totally worth it. I'm so glad that he did because it was this great way to get into the world. When I tell my story to budding writers and you know people who want to crack into the publishing world, it is a little bit of a strange way to get in because it's like, well, I wrote under somebody else's name for a long time and mm. got to know a lot of people. but. I guess any way is a way in. And it was great for me because I learned so much. So going into my first Pretty Little Liars novel, which was the thing that I developed when they asked, hey, would you like to develop something on your own? I feel like I had a better foundation had I tried to just like write a book. Right. I had ghostwritten maybe like six books by that point. Wow. Okay. So you totally understood their style too. I knew their style. I knew what it felt like to be edited. My skin wasn't as thin as it had been when I started out. I knew that edit revisions, there were sometimes several revisions. You had to go through like several rounds getting something right. I also kind of understood pacing and when to break a chapter and how to break a story into act. For me, I felt a lot more comfortable going for it. Certainly than I did when I was in 11th grade. Oh, yes. <laughs> Even when I was in grad school, I felt like, oh, I don't think I could write a whole novel. Like, it just seems way too hard. Learning on the job, I really did figure it out. Yeah, I'm absolutely. still figuring it out, by the way. I, every book that I write is... <gasps> wow. Okay, well, that's good to know. I think a lot of listeners deal with imposter syndrome. Yeah. Uh, even though they're like incredibly solid and well-trained writers. Yeah. And it's it's crazy to hear like authors on the show who are very, you know, how, how beginner writers would see very established and have had so many books under their belts and you have so many series under your belt. Um, right. But just to hear that you're still kind of like going through the same struggles. Oh my God. It's a relief to know that. I mean, it's, it's kind of scary because it, it's just never ending. But it it's does never- sound like it gets a little bit better because your skin gets tougher, which yeah. is always like relieving to hear. And your instincts do get better. My sense of sort of everything, ranging from dialogue to what makes an interesting character to voice, it does get better with everything that you write. It still is just as hard, but also to start a series. I still have a lot of false starts on things before hitting on what I really want to do, what I really want to talk about or want to write about. It's not now that I've written a bunch of books, when I'm ready to write the new one, I wake up and I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. You know, it still is, what am I going to write about? And sometimes there are months where I just don't know. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And luckily, something has always come up. An idea has always come to me, but it is not an immediate thing still. Wow. Okay, so I want to jump into that. Right before we do, I'm going to circle it back to us talking about Pretty Little Liars. And you were saying that you developed it with Alloy. I did. I'm trying to walk through the steps because it just is so fascinating to me. From ghostwriting, and you've had six under your belt already. They're like, wow, okay, you should really take on this project. 
So was it something that Alloy already had in mind where they're like, hey, we have this general super vague idea of these pretty girls and the secret. Would you take on this project and you flesh out everything and run with it? Or was it more so, hey, Sarah, we trust your work. You pitch us an idea and we'll approve of your story idea and then go from there. I think it was a combination of the two. They asked me, what are you interested in? I thought about it and I thought about books that I loved growing up. I read a lot of adult literary fiction growing up, but of the YA that I read, it was a lot of thriller. Gossip Girl was really popular at the time and I loved Gossip Girl, but I knew that I didn't want to write a social story. I wanted to write something a little darker and a little bit more of a mystery, but also get into teen issues that are weighing on kids in a way that some of the popular books at the time were not getting into quite as much. Mm-hmm. They all did. I mean, they were all great in their own ways. But that's what I told them. I just think we had a lot of conversations about, well, what could that look like? Together came up with the general idea of friends, pretty girl goes missing, returns, doesn't return, but A returns and A starts sending these cryptic messages about secrets from the present and the past. But then I remember going back and really thinking, okay, where is this going to be set? Who are our characters? And what is this going to look like? And I remember just writing the first couple of pages about each of the characters, which are all versions of me at different stages of my life. Oh. And where it was set, which was where I grew up. So it was very much, as far as concept, it was very much a collaboration. But then it's, I really used my own life. Not entirely. I didn't have a stalker. Nobody was murdered in my life. Nothing like that. But <laughs> used a lot of aspects of what I'd grown up around to actually make the book. Oh, wow. They had a lot of input as far as plot and as far as how the series would move forward and things like that. But I feel the starting point was both of us together. Okay, that's awesome. I know you mentioned that you guys discuss how to move it forward, but did you already decide as a team how it was going to end or not yet? It was just like, let's just get through book one and then we'll see what happens with book two. What was crazy was that once we sort of had the first couple of beats of, okay, these friends, they had past secrets, they have present secrets, and here we're going to write some chapters and we're going to have them receive their first note from A, which is going to be shocking for each of them. That was eight chapters. I literally wrote eight chapters of thinking like, okay, this is Pretty Little Liars. This is going to be a book one, but had a very sketchy concept of where book one was going to end. So at this point, I didn't really know who A was. Oh, wow. Now, this was really early in the process. It was not sold. I didn't know who A was. I wasn't entirely... I kind of knew how the book was going to end. I knew, spoiler, Allison's body was going to be found at the end of the book. But I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that... You know what? Now that I say that, I think I did know who the first A was going to be, but I didn't really know what it meant. I have an agent, William Morris. She took it and submitted it. It was a partial manuscript. Oh. She submitted it on a Friday and on a Monday. Again, this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen anymore, I feel like, or really ever. And it felt like a a dream come true. Monday, I got a call. The project had sold. And not only had it sold, four books had sold. You're talking about your agent representing for adaptation? My literary agent sent it to book publishers, to editors at publishing houses. On behalf of me and of Alloy, we share the right. Okay, I got so confused. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. William Morris is also a big entertainment. Yes, I definitely know William Morris. But I thought once you were affiliated with Alloy, I thought that they publish things themselves. Harper Collins published it. Yeah. I see. Wow, there's so much involved. I know. But Harper Collins bought four books. I had no idea what was going to happen. 
my life totally changed. It was like, oh, I'm going to be writing four books <laughs> called Pretty Little Liars. It wow. was crazy. From there, now knowing, okay, I'm going to be writing four books, then I sort of thought about how each book would end and sort of the general arc of the series. Oh, wow. I had only written eight chapters. It wasn't much time between those eight chapters and figuring out the rest of the book. It was a little bit crazy because it was like, oh my gosh, I really only have eight chapters and now you want me to write four books. Oh my but God. it was awesome. That's a great stress to have. But what was your timeline for yeah. each book? The timeline was a little crazy. The books were going to come out every six months. <gasps> what? Wait, how is that even? Whoa. There were no excuses. You couldn't be late. You just had to have it in within six months. I did not have a job. I mean, that was my job. He was writing them. I mean, that's the best job where your dreams literally come true. They literally came true. I mean, it was like overnight. You know the saying, when it rains, it pours? I mean, hello, it was pouring. But great things. Wow. It was amazing. Congrats. Congratulations. Very belated, but congrats. Thank you. It was an amazing day. It was sometime in June in 2005. Damn. It was crazy. It was unbelievable. I got right to work, obviously, and having that ghostwriting experience while juggling a full-time job, it helped me do the six-month deadlines because I already was writing pretty fast anyway for these ghostwriting projects. Yeah. It was okay. I didn't find it. How am I going to do this? Wow. So I got right to work with that. And then people started to read the series. And then for more books sold, I had eight. And I thought it was going to end with eight. But then this was in 2010. I got news about the TV show. Oh my so. gosh. So like yeah. a million more things came your way. That's so awesome. That's when I was like, okay, well, I want to write more Pretty Little Liars books. <laughs> no, that's smart. I was so sad to end it at eight because by then I had really invested in these characters and I loved them and I felt they were me, which they, they kind of were me. I didn't want to let them go, but eight books. That's a lot of books. And the series had wrapped up. But then with the show happening, it was like, oh, well, here's an opportunity to write some more books, which I was very thrilled about. How close was the show's storyline with your storyline in your books? Because I know that some TV shows, they kind of take things and like Gossip Girl, they definitely threw in a lot of characters that weren't in the books. And then they took things and ran with it. Right. Was that your situation? Or were they pretty like Game of Thrones and stuck to everything? They did and they didn't. They stuck to things and they didn't. The pilot was incredible. It was literally the first book. There were wow. lines from the first book in the pilot. <gasps> oh, Marlon King, she's wonderful. She did a great job adapting it, keeping the author there. She kept the spirit of the books for sure. There were a lot of seasons of Pretty Little Liars. They brought in a lot of new characters and new plot developments and lots of different things. But I feel like they always circled back to some stuff in the book. Yeah. I feel the spirit of the show was always in line with the spirit of the books. I was never disappointed with it. I always thought it was so much fun. There were many times where I got super lost. There's a lot to keep track of, so I can only imagine people reading my books. <laughs> While writing the books, I had to keep separate files of what was happening behind the scenes and what A was up to and what the backstory was and all that. So I can only imagine that's what they did on the TV end as well. Oh my gosh. I feel like if somebody only watched the show and were to pick up a Pretty Little Liars novel, they would not be disappointed and think, this is nothing like the show. It's now the reverse. Were there any scenes that you saw on the show that you're like, oh, dang, I should have added that in the book? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So <laughs> I can't even think. Well, the one that I always say is the Dollhouse season five, I think. The end of season five, A traps the girls in this horrible underground bunker with these terrible mind games. It's just so terrifying. I had nothing like that. 
and I wish I would have. Because <laughs> I thought it was really fun. And then the last season, which I thought was great, which was season seven, A had something called The Game. And it was this creepy board game that I thought, oh, man, I wish I would have had a creepy board game. Oh, man. Yeah, there were certain things that I was like, if only I had written a zillion books in this series. I could have included more things like this. Oh, man. I'm so glad to hear your feedback about how you felt about the show. That's awesome to hear because you just overall sound very, very happy. Yeah. And it sounded like they were very respectful to your storyline. They were. Even though they did their own plot developments, of course, when you're going at such a fast pace for TV shows. It's cool to hear that even you're like, ah, dang, there were some scenes that would have inspired me. They got it. Well, that was what was so cool is that they got what I was trying to do. And that that was really fun. That is awesome. I know that you were saying that you had that tight deadline six months for each book, which is insane. Naturally, I'm assuming you're human and that you ran into a lot of creative blocks or writer's blocks, Mm -hmm. unless you did not. Then I'm super jealous. When and if you did, could you share with our listeners, because a lot of them right now were in NaNoWriMo month, and we're going to be publishing your episode the week that Follow Me is coming out. Oh, nice. So if there's anything you want to share with our NaNoWriMo participants in our community, because I know that last year, a lot of them were getting stuck especially in the middle point. And then sometimes they're just like so caught up with details about how to wrap up certain scenes that they lose momentum and then they stop their progress. So is there anything that you can share, please, from your crazy deadlines that you had? Right. I do one of two things and they're actually the polar opposite of one another. One of them was just leave, leave the computer, Mm. (laughs) leave writing, because often when I am doing something else, it will pop into my head. That's how I could wrap up that scene or that's how the characters could resolve that or that's how I could push forward. The other thing that I do is just continue to write, even if it's nonsense, even if it's the wrong thing. Sometimes that will sort of unlock just by writing and kind of getting through it and like, oh, I've written three more pages. And now I'm on to that next scene, which I really wanted to write. And this is sort of a placeholder. And once I've continued farther with what is happening next, I can go back and maybe have an inspiration. Just keep going. But I know that's sometimes hard if you really have no clue (laughs) where you're going with something. For that, I'm usually an outliner. I mean, Mm. even if it's a very vague outline. For a lot of my YA projects, my outlines are 20 pages long and they're very specific. They get down to the nitty gritty of every chapter. I also have books that I've written that are not YA and are not collaborations that that are just me. So those outlines are a little bit more one line, at least like, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. But often in those outlines, whether they are YA or the ones that I write on my own, which are often adult, there's still the wrong direction to go. Mm -hmm. You write the scene and then you read it and you're like, that's still not right. But then you try something else and then that's still not right. I think you just have to keep trying yeah, at least you have a direction, yeah, right or wrong. Yeah. At least you have somewhere to go. Direction. I'm working on a book of my own. And one of the wrapping up chapters of one of the characters, I probably wrote five wildly different versions and they all felt wrong. And then I was like, oh no, this is the right one. Okay. And it still actually might not be quite right, but it's more right than the other one. And also you have something to work with. You could hack it, edit it, and just something on the page. Yes, because if you just have a blank, there's nothing you can do with that. Yeah. First drafts are not my favorite thing. I like going back after I have something and then messing with it because your first draft is never good. Yeah. At least mine isn't. Maybe there's somebody (laughs) out there whose first draft is amazing. You know, your sentences just flow and everybody is saying what they should be saying and all that, but mine never are. (laughs) 
Mine are pretty bad. <laughs> well, again, that's a relief. So thank you for sharing that. And that gives everybody hope. Yeah, just keep hope. I mean, that's the great thing about NaNoWriMo. I mean, you, you're writing a book without thinking. And, well, not without thinking, really, but you're writing it in one month. Mm-hmm. And you have to just keep going. And the mm-hmm. point is to finish. And yeah. you'll have a first draft. Don't worry about getting it perfect. I like to think of it as brain vomit. Then you can decide exactly. what you want to do with it. You want to shape it? Do you want to do? You want to clean it up? Put it away? Maybe there's just one <laughs> sentence in that first draft that's like, "Wait, that's where I'm yes. going." Yes. I had a teacher in my MFA program who she had written many novels, and she was saying she was three quarters of the way through her book when she realized, "Oh my gosh, that's what my main character needs to sound like." So she went back and she changed everything. You know, oh. so it happens to everybody. Oh my god! And it's okay to change your mind, even if your book is not what it's that you thought it was going to be when you set out to write it and it's turned into something else that's fine you know if you're happy about that story if it's become a story that you hate then maybe that's not fine but I feel like stories change on me all the time including Pretty Little Liars Pretty Little Liars in its original form was a little bit different at least first book in the series The Lion Game was very different at first The Amateurs the second one is out next week was very very different at first it's never going to be right on the first draft That was so helpful. Honestly, I know that's going to really help listeners and ease their stress. Let's talk about Follow Me, your second book in the Amateurs series. How did this come about? What was the inspiration? Can you give us a snapshot about the series? What I am sort of known for is writing thrillers and mysteries and sort of edge of your seat YA fiction from Pretty Little Liars and The Lion Game and The Perfectionist. They're all about secrets and terrible things happening to good people, pretty much. So The Amateurs is a little bit different in that it is about a group of teenagers who come together through like an online cold case forum. They're all really interested in solving cold cases. And these websites do exist. There's like forums of missing kids and cases that have gone cold and people who are trying to do the CSI thing from their computers. They get together, they all have these different backgrounds. Often their backgrounds are a little bit dark and haunted, which is maybe why they're on this site to start with. And they decide to get together and kind of look into this missing girl whose name was Helena. The first book is the four of them getting to know one another. And of course, there's romance in that. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of buried secrets. You find out about these characters and they do get closer to figuring out what happened to Helena. And at the end of the first book, I'm not going to give anything away, but there's a huge twist that hopefully you don't see coming. The second book in the series, and this twist, I have to say, connects to a lot of the characters in the book. It's a big driver for them. There's not much that I can say about it without giving too much away, but it is like a shocking thing that they find out, which makes them need to continue together and go after a certain person. So in the second book, they have this new knowledge of this twist that they figured out, and they are embarking on this new case also about a girl who's been kidnapped. So it was like a girl who who was killed, and now it's like a girl who's been kidnapped. Again, building on the relationships they've already had, the romances. Again, there's a lot of twists and turns. It's very much in the Pretty Little Liar style of you're on the edge of your seat, we get a look into who ends up being sort of the villain of this series. And I can't tell much about this person. (laughs) It's hard always talking about my books and especially the second book in the series or the third or the fourth or whatever, because I don't want to give anything away. Mm -hmm. But the villain is very 
creepy and super scary. And I love writing those chapters about this person because I hope the readers didn't see it coming. And they were some of my favorite chapters to write. And I actually just wrote the third book in the series. It's a trilogy. So it's the final book. And again, I had chapters from this person. And they were always the chapters that I wrote first because I was like, I love person i love like this point of view this like very dark torturing point of view how do you feel emotionally when you're writing these scenes through their point of view because my background being an actor i get a bit method so for me it would mess with me honestly i actually had to learn for acting to try and separate myself from the character and basically just have a safe space for my head because I get too much into things and even writing I'll get so caught up with some scenes I'll start crying and I'm depressed right how do you work on those scenes I'm sure there's lots of listeners listening in who are working on characters like that too where how do you do it where you are loving it and really getting into it so that you make it so realistic but also where you're protecting yourself I definitely feel for all of my characters and writing the villain is fun for me Okay. Which maybe says something about me. I'm (laughs) more emotional about the characters who are kind of the victims. Oh. Because I write about those characters too. And that is sometimes hard. It's YA. I'm not writing about any really graphic or awful or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there's still the fear, especially in this series, there are a couple of characters who have been kidnapped or, or scary things are happening to them. And in Pretty Little Liars as well, I remember there were a lot of chapters where all the girls, really scary things were happening to them. In that, I would feel vulnerable and scared. And I think as a writer, you kind of have to. I mean, you have to put yourself in your character's shoes and the sensations that go with that. It does make for a little bit weird of a day. It makes a better chapter, I guess. I could see that. I could see that. The thing that I feel deeply about with villains is I always try to make my villain characters have a backstory that explains why they're like this, whatever that is, you know, what the psychology of like, what has made them behave this way, that gets to me too. For some reason, the cruelness that they they have in the scene is just not fun exactly, but it's just sort of like, Oh my God, it's a lot of action and it's very emotional. It's fun to write about because it's not subtle. It's almost easy writing in a way. Mm. It's very shocking. And I guess Mm -hmm. it's kind of fun to write about stuff that's sort of blatantly shocking. I get into that headspace with the victims for sure. Really feeling scared and vulnerable and nervous. I should try to get in my villain's head a little bit more. I don't know. Instead, I'm just like, wow, this is awesome. I love it. I think that just shows your enthusiasm for the whole project <laughs> in general. It's different personalities. And it sounds like if you were going to go into acting, you'd be that actor who's able to tap into the character right away and then able to let it go as soon as they call a cut, which is actually right. very healthy and very good. That's a really great thing to have, being able to separate. You know, you did say something about action and there's a lot of action happening for those scenes with a villain that's making me wonder how are you able to create action scenes that are able to progress and really keep the suspense did you have a guide of a great writing craft book I'm sure I did back in the day it's mostly just going back to books that I thought this scene of action is really great of course I can't think of any off the top of my head and it often is all over the place you know it can be in lots of great books where I'll pick up a page and be like, they did that really well. And then I'll try to commit that to memory. Like, how did they do that? So that the writing was was good and interesting, but it also moved really quickly. I love to read Stephen King. Mm. He 
wrote a great book on writing too, which I have read pieces of, but I just feel like he writes action really well and murdering really well. (laughs) But also he has a great sense of how to keep the tension going and it just is a marvel. And I often go back to, you know, reading his short stories or reading some of his books or even listening. I'm a big audiobook person. Nice. Sometimes listening to action sometimes helps. Oh. You know, listening to it when you read sort of a, a very action-heavy book, even like a James Patterson novel or something like that, where it's, it's interesting to hear stuff like that read versus like read it yourself because the audiobook narrator really gets into it and gets into what's happening and in a way that sometimes as a reader we're just sort of reading and whatever but it's, it's kind of fun to hear it read aloud nice that helps me a lot when writing especially action scenes or like creepy scenes yeah. or stuff that's really really dark it's, I like to hear it like I listen to most of Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes series as an audiobook because I love where he cut the chapters to keep ratchet up the tension and I love sort of how he described this thing happening or in the really action heavy moments the sentences are maybe shorter or whatever and you know sometimes I'll take notes on how did he do that so well what was happening I mean I feel like early on you learn to emulate your favorite authors and it's totally fine to write in their style because you'll find your voice Mm. eventually but it's kind of picking up on that and learning what people do really well. It's definitely something that I use a lot subconsciously and then consciously. Oh, I love that. Well, we're gonna have to list that Stephen King audiobook on your resource page for your oh, show notes. That would be really helpful. I could just imagine you when you're working on your action scenes that you imagine things almost like a movie in your head. Oh, absolutely. Do you also do little notes or like bullet points of what you envision so that you can fill it in and flesh it out? Oh, yeah. Dialogue, I don't do it so much, but with action, it will sort of be bullet points of blocking what the scene looks like and then I will fill it out. And also with action scenes, once I have a scene written, I will read it aloud in the same way that I like Mm, hearing things read aloud. I'll read it aloud. How does this sound read aloud? Is this compelling enough? Is this on the edge of your seat enough? That's awesome. Sarah, thank you so much. I would really love to tap into one of the most difficult moments or the most difficult moment in your life. I have a career one, but then I have another one too. In high school, (laughs) going back, I mean, sure, we have lots of ups and downs in our lives, but I'm trying to think lowest. And in high school, I was probably like a junior in high school and I developed an eating disorder. So I was really depressed and it just sort of came on gradually. I just didn't feel like I belonged in any place anymore. All of my friends would have these petty fights. I just had no self-esteem anymore. There were things going on in my family, and I just felt like I was kind of spiraling out of control. And with eating disorders, it is all about getting the control back and controlling something. And I just remember, mostly senior year, feeling so lonely and so like in my own little cocoon of sadness and controllingness. It's something that I brought into Pretty Little Liars of talking about eating disorders and how lonely it is and how even when people are like, you need to eat something or you need to get help or whatever, you don't want to hear it because Mm -hmm. you just in your own cocoon of sadness and it is hard to drag yourself out of it. You know, what helped for me was honestly, and I I feel like this does not help for everybody and everybody kind of has their way out of these things. And unfortunately, some people, it's really hard to get out of it. You know, you're stuck in this cycle for a long, long time. But I was lucky enough. I went to NYU. So I went to college. I went to New Mm -hmm. York City and being around people who understood me better, because I think kids 
go through that in high school. Like you just feel very misunderstood and you feel yeah. very in in your school or whatever, or people make fun of you. I had a couple relationships that just didn't work out and there was no real trauma in my life. It just was this sort of gradual depression that closed over me. But I went to New York and I met new people and I was doing new things and it was exciting and slowly I got out of it. Wow. I realized I needed to be around new friends, the people I could talk to, people I could open up to and that made all the difference and that was great for me. That was really dark. I feel like that's something that I always try to touch on a little bit in whatever I'm writing about, whether it's the controlling of an eating disorder or depression and that you should find your ways to get out of it and asking for help is okay. And I didn't really recognize it, which was hard looking back on it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I spent so many months so sad, but I was one of those you know, lucky people that I was able to climb out of it. It's something that I feel pretty deeply about when I hear of other people going through it. I'm so sorry that you had to go I'm through okay that. now. Yeah, but I'm really, yeah, I am very happy that you were able to get through it. I know you're very close to your sister. Was it difficult to talk to your sister about it? I really didn't talk to her about it. Mm. We were still really good friends. We were still doing crazy creative projects. I held myself at arm's length and I was sort of in this spiral of obsessive compulsiveness and just didn't get really close to anybody. And years later, we talked about it. At the time, we didn't. It was totally me because my best friend from high school, too, tried to kind of like, we should talk about this. And I just didn't want to. I didn't want to talk mm -hmm. to anybody about it because you don't want to change. You're in your safe. Okay, this I can control. And if I start talking to somebody about it, and if they want me to start fixing it, I won't be able to control anything anymore. And I think once I got to college and was controlling my life in a way. Mm -hmm. Classes, I had a job and I was doing really cool stuff and meeting new people. And it gave me a lot of confidence and it, it sort of gradually wasn't as big of a deal. We have talked about it since, but it is crazy to think about it. I feel like I missed a whole year of high school. And the other thing is in my career, it's interesting. I was so lucky with the way Pretty Little Liars happened. You know, I submitted eight chapters and then they sold right away. I never had to go through that first novel struggle. Am I ever going to get an agent? Is this ever going to sell? I was on that trajectory for a really long time with so many books coming out. You know, once the show was doing really well, and again, I'm so fortunate, like everything that I've gone through and all of the readers that I have and all the attention that I've gotten, I feel like so many writers are just as talented as I am and we all deserve the same shot. But it was funny, in about 2014, I had my second son and took a break from writing for a little bit, which meant taking a break from social media, taking sort of a break from everything. It wasn't a low point coming back into the book world. But once I came back, which was a good two years later, the world had really changed. <laughs> a lot of people, they were on social media a lot more and the market had changed a lot. And I remember going to a big convention and feeling like, oh my gosh, I don't know anybody and I don't know what books are out right now. And I just felt so out of the loop. And it was not low, but it was like a little bit of a wake up call of how publishing changes a lot and the market changes a lot. And if you're working on a book right now and you're like, this is not the hot thing that's selling, you shouldn't worry about it so much because the hot thing keeps changing. You should just write what you love. At the time when I was coming back into the market, I was like, oh my goodness, what I am writing, which is sort of thriller, mystery, realistic fiction, 
is sort of not the thing that people are going crazy for. And that was as crazy as it sounds. It was one of the first times where I just felt just sort of in the sea of face of writers. And it was humbling, but it was also, yeah, this is the way that the market is. And there's a lot of talent out there and there's a lot of cool stuff out there and everybody is getting their time. And it was kind of an interesting realization to go through, I guess. This is the way that having a career is. There's ups and downs and sometimes what you're doing is really popular and sometimes it's not and it's okay when it's not. You still write what you love and still do what you love to do and there's nothing wrong with you because I remember coming back into the YA world of conventions and book festivals and things like that and just feeling, oh my goodness, nobody wants to be in my signing line. Oh, but it's like, no, it was a good experience because now it sort of makes any attention that I get from now on really sweet. It sort of reset my expectations in a weird way because mm. when you get a show on TV, you do kind of, all right, well, I have a show on TV. Well, can I get another show on TV? Mm. Your head goes to a crazy place and it brought me down to earth. Right. Reality gets a little warped in the entertainment world. In the moment, I was like, oh, poor me, but I needed it. Mm-hmm. I needed the wake up call and I needed to sort of get on the social media train and reach out to fans in ways that I wasn't reaching out to them before. I think this sounded honestly like a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I was letting things go. And, and especially the relationships that I'd built with readers. You know, I, I say, oh, I will. I had kids, but I use that as an excuse. That's not really what was happening. I just was, oh, well, you know, whatever. My fans will always be there. And it's like, no, your readers are wonderful. And you need to like to give them love and tell them how much you care about them and how happy you are that they want to read your stuff. That's very, very important. Yeah. I feel like now it sounds like you really have a true understanding of your people and your community. I think you can use yeah. the word community yeah. through and yeah. through. And that's something yeah. that I've have gone through myself too, where it's, oh my gosh, this is the first time where I understand community through this podcast. It is. It's so rewarding. Inward rewards, I think, are so much more important and more powerful than outwardly rewards. Yeah, I agree. Sarah, that was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'd love to wrap up with a listener question. We actually had a couple, but we actually ended up naturally covering it during our conversation. There's one question from Sasha Nanua. She said, I would love to hear if Sarah has any other books about side characters in the PLL world plan. (laughs) I know there's a new Mona short story, but anything else? And she wrote in all caps, I am a huge Sarah Shepard fan, oh. so I cannot wait for this episode. Uh, an exclamation mark. And she loves you. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> this is sort of a little side effect of realizing that I need to get back to the fans and the readers and connect with them more. I'm sure she knows that I wrote some fan fiction as it is classified on Amazon about Allie and Emily as a couple. I wrote two books so far. I'm sure she knows this already. One is called Pretty Little Love and the other is Pretty Little Lost and they are about 50 pages in length. They're just sort of short stories. I am going to write a third. I have gotten a lot of messages on Twitter that have said, where is your third Allie and Emily book? (laughs) I'm going to write it, I promise. They were really, really fun to write. And I would love to write about some of the other characters. It was really fun to write about Mona as well. I would be interested in writing about Jenna. I've gotten some requests to write about Arya and Ezra as a couple. I think that would be really fun. Somebody has asked me about Caleb and Hannah. Caleb and Hannah is a little harder for me because he's Hannah's boyfriend on the show. He was not a character in the books. I feel like I don't know him as well as 
I know some of the other boys that were in the series. So I don't know if I'm going to write about him. I would love to write about all the girls 10 years on. I think that would be really fun. So right now, the thing that I have planned is a third short story about Allie and Emily. I'm definitely going to do that. I will let everybody know on social media when it's up. I have not started it yet, but I'm gonna get around to it I promise another thing that I thought was fun and I actually started writing it last year sometime when I had a little bit of time and then I ran out of time was writing a bunch of short stories about some of the really peripheral characters in Pretty Little Liars because there were a lot of characters that sort of came up here and there but you never knew really what happened to them and Jenna was definitely one of them there were some other characters that the girls dated or that the girls were friends with or like older sisters or brothers or parents or something like that. And I thought that would be really cool to have a collection of all these (laughs) other people, which kind of tells you that I am very unwilling to let go of this world. And I love Pretty Little Liars so much. And I just want to keep writing about them. Yeah. So we shall see. I, I promise that I will try to do some more stuff with all of the characters that we've all connected to. I'm sure that's going to make Sasha so happy. So thank you for answering that question. And to the other listeners, I'll just let you know their names because they did send their love and they're very big fans of you. We don't have time to cover their questions. And also a lot of them we did cover already naturally throughout our conversation. So Kelly Manka Russo Porter, we have Jean Rodrigue, Danielle Thaldorf, and Jody Armsby Gallegos. And they love your work and they had all these awesome questions, but just had to let you know that they were so excited to get that cue in. And Sarah, you were so awesome. Please let us know where to find you on social media to say hi. On Twitter, I am at Sarah Books, S-A-R-A Book. Instagram, I am Sarah C. Shepard, and that's just S-A-R-A, C as in cat, S-H-E-P-A-R-D. I am that on Snapchat as well, but I am not on Snapchat very much, (laughs) admittedly. And on Facebook, I believe I am just Sarah Shepard Author. Facebook, I'm not on very much. If you uh, write to me on either Twitter or Instagram, I do read that a lot, and I will get back to you. Perfect. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you. This was awesome. And that wraps up our episode with Sarah Shepard. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the show. This was so much fun. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please say hi to Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Books. For the books and resources mentioned in her episode, head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Sarah Shepard. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. And for NaNoWriMo participants, this is the perfect place for you to check in about your progress and to keep yourselves accountable. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.